This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, I'm Cassie Huff. It's great to have your company for The Country Hour today. A $12.7 million project will integrate potentially game-changing genetic material into Australian wheat, and it is gaining interest. So we're very much focusing on how we can build a system and a package so that with the release of new long coleoptile wheats, hopefully very soon, adoption will be and take-up will be very rapid. More on that soon. And as we enter autumn, we could, uh, we're could we going to take a little bit of a look at what the weather patterns could hold. And uh, we will take a look at that now. I'm sure uh, as uh, autumn has just begun, people are wondering what it's going to bring and what are the odds that the climate swings from La Nina to El Nino this season? Well, according to the 11 climate models, Agriculture Victoria's Dale Gray monitors, pretty high. They're all tipping a week to normal El Nino will develop in winter, but Dow Gray says uh, he doesn't think the evidence is there just yet. Well, at the moment, um, we have a Pacific Ocean that's cooled, uh, what was very cold, um, has now come back to complete normality, uh, and the undersea ocean in that is still set up somewhat uh, La Nina-like. Uh, but the real interesting is that the atmosphere above the Pacific Ocean as measured by the, the cloud patterns, the trade winds and the pressure patterns with the, the Southern Oscillation Index simply hasn't got the memo, Angus. And it's, it's just, uh, it, it's still continuing on very much in a La Nina-like fashion. OK, so those big drivers still indicating La Nina pattern. Well, I think that's, and that's what we're seeing down the eastern coast of Australia, that the possibility of getting big rainfall is, is still there if the right triggers are available to bring that moisture down. Now, we would expect um, that that will, bre- it will break down sometime in autumn, sometime in the next two months. Uh, we will see everything, both the atmosphere and the ocean, returning to normal in the Pacific. OK, that's, so that's an expectation, but the indicators sort of aren't there at the moment? No, not yet. Um, I think our first indicators will be that we start to see either some pressure changes, so the pressure becoming more normal at Darwin and Tahiti, or we start to see some changes in the trade winds. Um, The trade winds are that key feature at this time of the year that either um, kick off La Nina-type events or or potentially kick off El Nino-type events. And so at the moment, those trade winds are blowing very strongly from the east, which is La Nina-like. But if we were to see some reversal in those trade winds, that would be the first indicator that maybe something's afoot. Okay, so they would flip around and blow from the west and push that warm water away from Australia? Yes, so over the last three years uh, with the La La Ninas we've had, We've had a really large build-up both at the equator and north and south of that in the Western Pacific of a large amount of warm water to depth. And that is going to be very prone to be pushed over to the coast of South America with some, if, if we get some of that sort of westerly windburst. OK, so it sounds like perhaps we do go into an El Nino pattern, but the indicators aren't there at this stage. But, but at the same time, all of those uh, forecast models that you study, I think there's at least 11 of them, they're all forecasting an El Nino? It's the amazing thing, Angus. They're, um, they're all saying in the next three months things stay relatively neutral and benign, but they're all uh, going to some sort of weak to normal-like El Nino pattern uh, 
in, in for winter, um, generally around the July-August period. And, um, and this is the bizarrest thing because, as I said, at the moment there is no evidence that that is happening and there's no evidence that it could happen. But nonetheless, all those models are, are predicting that. So when I'm thinking about using model forecasts, um, I like to... The model saying one thing is, is, is something, but I'd love to be able to see some evidence to back that up that I can see how this plausibly either is happening or could happening. Whereas at the moment... It's simply just a model forecast, and people need to be mindful that at this time of the year, generally, when the Pacific Ocean is in reset mode, that it's the, it's the worst time of the year to be making those predictions, and they have the poorest predictability. Okay, so if, it, if it's a tough time to make the forecast, if, if you don't think the evidence is there, why have we got this, this consensus? Well, I, I wish I knew the answer to that, Angus, and I simply... I simply don't know the answer to that. One can only imagine that they all see some westerly windburst event happening. I think it's interesting times, but it really is a case of really just being um, aware and not alarmed, I think, at this time of the year, Angus. There's, there's going to be a lot of talk about El Nino, but at this time of the year, it's simply that. And, you know, until we actually start to see some evidence of that flipping in that direction, I wouldn't be paying too much credence for it in terms of my farm management. If we don't get that reversal of those trade winds, it's impossible for an El Nino to develop? It, it will be. There has to be that reversal to sustain a, an El Nino. So the, if we don't get that reversal of the trade winds, I think the most likely outcome is that we'll have a neutral year in the Pacific. And people might think, oh, you beauty, that might mean average. But it's important to point out that neutral years have had a range of outcomes, both from wet, average and dry. So if it's a neutral Pacific, it's really a case of anything could happen. Um, but if we do get an El Nino, it tends to spin up the chances of it being much drier. Dale Gray there with the Agriculture Victoria speaking with Angus Verley. Now we'll uh, head across to uh, the Grain Producers SA because a working group to review the cease harvest threshold for grain harvesting has met today. Last year, a new measure was brought in as part of the Australian Fire Danger rating system. However, there wasn't enough time for grain producers to get their heads around the new system, so farmers were granted an exemption to use the old or new system last harvest. But that's all going to be changed. And to explain how it's going to work, uh, there's and, and to get farmers up to speed, Brad Perry joins me now. Good afternoon. Hi, Gazzy. So you're meeting today. What's the main purpose of the today's meeting? We are. So um, as part of the background on this issue, um, we, uh, we were given a very late notice of a change under the Fire Behaviour Index to um, the number that grain producers um, generally cease harvest on under the code of practice. Um, from there, we were able to negotiate a stay for the old system. Um, so we had both the old system and the new system running over the most recent harvest. Um, what that did give us uh, the ability to do was to compare the two systems side by side. What we found is that um, they certainly aren't, uh, aren't a comparison. So... Uh, we're working with the state government, um, CFS, uh, SA Police and PERSA on a, a working group, which will meet this afternoon. Um, and we're going to really discuss uh, the Grain Harvest Code of Practice, but particularly the Grassland Fire Danger Index, which is the old system that grain producers have been using, um, and the transition to the Fire Behaviour Index um, and the numbers related to those. 
do you envisage that will mean a change? Because I think uh, it, it, the numbers that, that used to be used is uh, a 35 under the, the grain, uh, the, the um, harvest, the former measure, but the new fire behaviour index is 40. They aren't the same. Do you see that um, FBI number changing or will farmers have to adjust? Well, I think there's there's two options um, that we'll be looking at, and I don't want to preempt anything at all because we certainly welcome the working group, and um, I think this is a really constructive uh, way to approach this. Um, and uh, we we think that there's an issue either with the calculation or the number from a from a grain producer's perspective. So we'll certainly be going in and providing uh, the evidence and the data um, that we need, particularly having that that harvest period to show that. Um, we'll be demonstrating that. We'll be bringing in um, experts to provide and, and grain producers to provide evidence as well to show. Uh, I mean, just one example that I've been given um, on the Air Peninsula, for example, under the FBI of 40, uh, there was about 100, nearly 200 um, hours would have been taken out during uh, November, December, January and February from harvesting, whereas under the GFDI, um, it was just a touch over 30 hours. So uh, it does show you there is a, a big difference in, in comparison to the data. Um, from a grain producer's point of view, we don't want to see um, any less uh, harvest days um, taken out than we already have. Um, but obviously, we want to keep everyone as safe as possible as well. So the FBI is more cautious? The, the FBI is a, a lower threshold figure. There's no doubt about that, the way it's calculated currently and proposed. This was meant to be a harmonised system across Australia, given the nationalisation of the Australian fire danger rating system. Could these numbers be based on interstate experience and not South Australian experience? There's so there are different um, there's different ways that uh, fire uh, fire safety is approached for grain harvesting um, across the different states. So. Uh, it, it is different in that regard. Um, we certainly recognise that the fire danger rating system has changed um, and that there's different science and, and research behind that. Um, I think we've got to work out what is best for our grain producers in South Australia, and that's our, our number one goal through this. Um, you know, the system had excellent acceptance and adoption under the old GFDI system of 35. We need a similar figure um, that resonates uh, with the FBI and I mean what why change something that's not broken so why try and fix something that's not broken so we'll be seeking um, that outcome by working constructively with the members in the group. Clearly harvest is a long way away given that seeding hasn't even started yet when are you expecting you'll have an outcome? Uh, we're hopeful that we'll have this wrapped up and, and recommendations acceptance put forward um, by the end of June that's certainly the aim at the moment we need enough time to be able to um, you know, speak with our grain producers right across the state um, and really try and highlight why there's a change, what the change is, and, and just make it as simple as possible for them to adhere to, to what is a voluntary code. Um, and as I said before, we've had outstanding uptake by a majority of grain producers to the code. So we really want that to continue. Um, and, and also in saying that, you know, I've been out to a number of grain producer property where they are prepared for a fire. They've got um, farm fire units. They've got, you know, former CFS trucks. That, you know, they're probably better prepared than they have ever been before for a fire. Well, I know you've got to get back to the meeting, so thanks for taking time to explain that to me. Thanks, Cassie. Grain Producers Chief Executive Officer Brad Perry speaking there. It is 16 minutes past 12.
You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Staying with Grain, a $12.7 million project to integrate what's been described as game-changing genetic material into Australian wheat, allowing farmers to sow crops in a greater range of climate scenarios. The national project is being led by the CSIRO. It's going to work with state agricultural bodies to try and fast-track the adoption of wheat varieties with long coleoptile genetic traits. Now, the coleoptile is the protective sheath of the plant, which encloses the emerging shoot and and the first leaves and the longer that coleoptile is the better chance the crop has when it's sown deep into stored moisture and a better chance of therefore making its way to the surface and surviving. Lead researcher and CSIRO plant geneticist Dr Greg Rebetsky says long coleoptiles take some of the risk out of seeding. So we're very much focusing on how we can build a system and a package so that with the release of new long coleoptile wheats, hopefully very soon, adoption will be and take-up will be very rapid and we'll optimise the conditions so that we get the very best out of the deep-sown long coleoptile wheats. So there's aspects of nutrition, disease, machinery type, um, soil moisture on top of the genetics that will be coming out of the breeding program. So it's it's a whole package to maximise the adoption and reduce the risk of poor uptake and poor adoption. You have shown through your work uh, that there are amazing opportunities for increased yield through sowing deeper and and these uh, vigorous long coleoptile seeds. What are some of the key questions that... Uh, is it nutrition? Is is that one of the big ones? Now, probably the biggest question is, do we need to plant deep? And so, we only really want to plant deep if we don't, if we have moisture at depth and we don't have topsoil moisture, and the forecast is for no rain. So, getting away from that dry sowing issue and the risk of planting a, a late maturing wheat, sowing that early and then not having it emerge for four to six weeks and delaying flowering. So for us it's about making sure that the grower is comfortable that in deep sowing they're going to optimise and make use of that deep moisture so germination occurs right on time and the crop grows to its full potential. When we sow deep, we sow into moisture, it it takes two to three days to emerge from from depths of 10 or or more centimetres. But the benefit, if we don't have topsoil moisture in sowing deep, is the crop grows right from day one. And particularly in those early months of April, May, June, the conditions for water productivity are more, are more beneficial. So the exchange of water for carbon dioxide for making carbon, making biomass, is much more efficient. So we really want to try and ensure that, particularly with larger programs, if we sow early, if we sow into deep moisture and we optimise the timely emergence of those long coleoptile types. And to to do that, we've got to be sure the nutrition is right, got to be sure that no concerns with disease. Um, We have to be sure we have the the control of sowing depth, we have the right equipment, and all of that will vary right across Australia with soil type and and with, with the soil moisture. So it will potentially uh, also vary from year to year depending on on what's happening with the season? Absolutely. There are years where we may not need to sow deep and if that's the case we we, we won't, we shouldn't. The long coleoptile wheats can be sown shallow so it's only if we um, are sowing deep 
that we um, and we need to sow deep that we that we can take advantage of the long coleoptile. But what's been really interesting is there's also other systems that we're seeing the benefit of long coleoptile, irrespect uh, independent of water and with soil amelioration where you've got variable sowing depth, a long coleoptile wheat gives growers some capacity and some surety of sowing in an uneven seabed and ensuring reliable uh, seeding emergence. And so Stephen Davies and Michael Lamond, SLR, um, are both working with me on this project to try and understand better the capacity with soil amelioration and long coleoptile ensuring emergence. Um, we've got some really great data out of SLR, uh, Kate um, uh, Whittam and, and uh, Michael Lamond, where sowing deep below the, uh, the rhizoctonia mycelial layer may give us some opportunities for avoiding disease and avoiding bare patch. So there are situations where we may have moisture, uh, shallow moisture, but we just want to be sure that we get good emergence and good seedling growth, and that's where long coleoptiles may give growers some other system benefits. It is a four-year $12.7 million package. You've already shown that long coleoptile and the vigour can have significant impact on yields. At the end of this four years, what will make this project successful for you? I believe a growers having the complete confidence to use and appreciate their capacity to sow deep if they need to. What means a lot to me in large sowing programs is de-stressing growers and removing the stress and the risk of re-sowing and where they do have late emergence, reducing the risk of reduced yields by flowering later into a hotter dry finish. For me, success is long coleoptiles won't ever be talked about. They'll just be part of the package of new wheat varieties that come uh, to growers. Dr. Greg Grubetsky from the CSIRO speaking with Lucinda Jose. We're to markets now where Peter Kerr has the results from the Mount Gambier cattle sale. Good afternoon, Cass. This is the Mount Gambier cattle report for the 1st of March. Numbers these a little as 80 shouted 615 head of live weight and open option cattle. These side to a large field of trade and process the buyers along with feeder and restockers support. Quality was generally good in the dearer market. Dealers were sought after by the trade with a lifting price of $0.10 cents for the steers as they made from 380 to 497 Feeders active from 385 to 406 Field heifers to the trade made from 332 to 488 cents with a rise of $0.25 cents as feeders operated at 384 Gearing steers to trade buyers sold from 392 to 445 cents Similar heifers from 334 to 378 Feeders sought steers from 382 to 395 as restock orders operated over both sexes from 402 to 435 cents a kilogram. Growing season bullies lifted 8 to 12 cents. They made from 358 to 381, with feeder support from 350 to 400 cents a kilogram. Growing heifers rose 6 cents to return from 313 to 400 cents to the traders. Feeders were active to 370, while a restock order purchased from 313 to 363 cents a kilogram. Manufacturing steers ranged from 250 to 334. Heavy cows were firm in price. They made from 280 to 317 cents. Lighter lots sold from 210 to 271. As bulls returned from 240 to 290 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Peter. And John Traeger has the results from the Dublin sheep and cattle sale. Good afternoon. Numbers reduced this week as agents offered 4,200 lambs and 2,000 sheep. Quality was again extremely mixed with score two lambs yarded in larger numbers. 
Competition was steady as light merino lambs eased a further five to eight dollars ahead as restock has become more selective, with the best of the processed lambs equaling last week's sale peak of $251 per head. Mutton quality was generally good and prices here posted a moderate lift in price. Extremely light young lambs sold from 90 to 115, medium weights ranged from 136 to 152, with a few heavyweights selling from 196 to $214 per head. Light older lambs ranged from 88 to 120, medium weights sold from 139 to 155, with the best of the heavyweights selling from 234 to the sale top of $251 per head. Hoggets sold from 155 to 188 and 8 to $10 dearer, as light mutton sold from 69 to 78. Medium weight mutton ranged from 76 to 110, with heavyweights selling from 96 to 136. Rams sold in a wide range from $28 to $78. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers reduced substantially this week as agents offered 175 live weight and open auction cattle and 75 open auction calves. Prices eased under indifferent competition are reflecting the fair to average quality of the offering. Medium weight yielding steers sold from 352 to 380 cents as the few heavier cattle sold from 320 to 400 cents a kilo. Light yielding heifers sold from 320 to 366 cents. Medium weights ranged from 333 to 356 cents, with heavier weights selling to 336 cents a kilo. Grown steers sold from 270 to 300 cents, with grown heifers ranging from 288 to 326 cents a kilo. Light yielding bulls sold from 332 to 390 cents, with heavy bulls selling to 250 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for Emily's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks for that, John. And we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Senior forecaster Simon Timke has the weather for the first day of autumn. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. What's on the cards? Look, a pretty quiet few days to finish off this week. We're under the influence of a slow-moving high-pressure ridge to the south, which is directing a a fairly mild uh, southerly airstream over SA. Uh, uh, It's producing some cloud over the agricultural area, mostly clear skies further north, and there are some uh, uh, light showers about uh, southern coasts and ranges there. A few have picked up uh, less than two millimetres or so and the odd local fall of two to five millimetres but generally the rainfall totals on the low side uh, and, and that story is not really changing over the next day or so. Thursday will be similar and then Friday I think those showers will, will clear away during the morning so the rest of Friday and Saturday should be dry. Things start to warm up a little bit on Saturday. That high um, moves to the east of uh, Tasmania, so we start to see the winds turn around a bit more northerly and things warm up. Sunday is probably the, the hottest day out of the next week, but it will be short-lived uh, as a change moves across the west and south of, uh, of SA on Sunday, bringing a cooler um, southwest to southerly airstream that will persist into the early part of next week. That change will also bring some showers mostly over the southern agricultural area uh, and those showers persisting on Monday and Tuesday uh, and then contracting just back to uh, to southern coasts on uh, on Wednesday. Rainfall totals not huge uh, as I said uh, 
that few days out to the end of Saturday, most totals less than two millimetres and restricted to just near southern coasts and ranges. The odd fall of two to five. On Sunday, uh, following that change, uh, we'll see falls of one to five millimetres about the southern agricultural area. Maybe some isolated falls reaching five to ten about southern coastal districts. Um, further inland, less than two millimetres over the northern agricultural area and, and dry over the northern parts of the state, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Simon Timkey there with the weather forecast. And in the far west of New South Wales, the upper western is going to be sunny tomorrow. Overnight temperatures are going to fall to between 15 to 20 degrees, but the daytime temperatures are going to reach the low to high 30s. So still rather warm there in the upper far west. The lower western, again, sunny winds, a little bit of wind around. Overnight temperatures are going to fall to between 11 and 14 degrees, but again, the daytime temperatures reaching around 30 degrees. Coming up on the program, you might, uh, if you've been listening to the Country Hour, we have been talking about an electric ute. Well, soon I'm going to tell you about Australia's first electric logging truck. It's now in operation, so keep listening for that. I've got more to come on the Country Hour. I'm Cassie Huff. It's approaching 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Hello, it's lovely to have your company today on the first day of autumn. It does feel like there's a bit of change in the air, a bit of overcast weather in some parts of the state. Soon I'm going to take you to an oyster farm where you can hear how uh, some of the uh, older technology is uh, being changed up for a more bulk handling operation of oyster farming. We get an increase in production off the farms but also an increase in quality because the oysters uh, actually like drying out so the more often you you can do that um, the better that they are. More on that soon and uh, we've been talking about electric utes. Well what about an electric logging truck? It's now in operation in the southeast. I'll tell you a little more about that soon but first we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman, good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, an Adelaide man accused of planning a terrorist act has been ordered to stand trial after pleading not guilty to nearly two dozen crimes. Artem Vasilyev has pleaded not guilty to 23 charges, including acts to prepare or plan a terrorist act, possessing firearms without a licence and possessing unregistered firearms. Court documents allege the 26-year-old Finden man imported, manufactured and possessed weapons, explosive substances and documents in preparation for or planning a terrorist act between July 2020 and September 2021. Popular Adelaide beaches will soon begin to receive deliveries of sand to help overcome erosion and sand drift. From March, tens of thousands of cubic metres of sand from quarries will be used to help rebuild the shoreline, starting with Semaphore Park. And Australia's economy grew 0.5% in the final three months of 2022. The official Bureau of Statistics figures are well below most economists' forecasts. However, annual growth of 2.7% was in line with analysts' expectations. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, as I was saying, it's been described as bulk handling for oyster farming. And the technology is being used now by many oyster farmers across Australia. It's known as the flip farm. Basically, the setup sees 
baskets, these oyster baskets, travel along what looks like a conveyor belt with all the handling done from the boat. Now, the founder of the Flip Farm, Aaron Parnell, is an oyster grower from New Zealand and spoke with South Australian growers about where to next for the product. Yeah, well, it came as, I guess, a solution to a few problems that we had. And I guess it's a a series of of events sometimes that these things um, come along. So uh, we were struggling with the with the current system that we had, and particularly in storms and things, losing equipment off the off the lines. And I actually um, bought a small company, and with it came some spare equipment, and that turned out to be uh, Hexel ba- uh, oyster baskets. And it turns out they were the kind of the ideal basket to use for this new system. So through a series of events, we happened to fluke on the uh, the system that we um, developed into Flip Farm. For people that might not have seen it, how would you describe it and how is it different to what people might think of when they think of an, an oyster farm? Well, the traditional oyster farm uses um, containers to hold the oysters and they're generally individually handed, so they're handled. So they need to be attached to lines and removed off lines or onto racks and each one is handled one at a time and it's picked up and placed onto a boat and then taken back for, for the emptying. Um, with our system, we leave all the equipment on the farm. The baskets uh, can rotate around a central pivot, and that allows us to open the basket, empty it out, refill it, and very importantly, it allows us to rotate the basket over onto uh, a float, which is attached to the top of the basket, which actually elevates the basket and the oysters out of the water, and that allows them to dry, and that kills off biofouling, which is basically all the animals in the sea that want to grow on our equipment. What does that mean in terms of what you can produce um, with the oysters? Yeah, we've got an increase in production off the farms, but also an increase in quality because the oysters uh, actually like drying out, so the more often you you can do that, um, the better that they are. And also, because the equipment stays clean, we get a lot less pests and fouling and diseases and things that affect the oysters. How long did it take to get it set up to where it is today? The first concept, we actually, uh, the inkling of the idea was in 2015, and uh, we were very busy with our oyster operation, so it took a while to sort of get to a point where we started to commercialise it. Uh, we applied for our patent in 2017, and uh, that was granted early 2018, and then from then on we've continued to develop the commercial side of the business. I heard a comment today from uh, one of the, the South Australian growers that it's a little bit like the grain industry with with bulk handling moving into that system is that how you would sort of would describe it yeah i came from the muscle industry which does a lot of that bulk handling we were often handling 100 to 200 ton a day Uh, so you had to have automated systems and bulk handling systems and another industry in our region in Marlborough and the top of the South Island is the, the grape, the wine industry. And I often uh, say it's very similar to a bottling plant. Um, what we were doing before is hand filling each bottle of wine with, with, with wine. And now we've got a bottling line that we're running these baskets through. It's equivalent to that. And I guess that also means when it comes to, to workers and, and occupational health and safety as well, that more people can uh, work in the oyster industry. Yeah, that's been one of the most amazing things for us and it's something that we didn't anticipate at the start. Traditionally we had a lot of uh, young um, guys that were working in the industry because it was very physical and they're a really hard demographic to, to source now because everybody's after those sort of workers that can you know put in the, the big days. And now basically if you can stand on a boat you can operate the system. So we have a, a big range of ages, we have men and women working in the, in the teams and that's been really satisfying because it, it, it adds that wide demographic to our teams and it just makes it 
uh, everybody just works so much better together when you have that range of, of skills and experience. What's been the uptake here in Australia? Pretty significant. Um, Australia is our biggest market in the world. Uh, we're in 16 countries around the world. And I think the key difference in Australia is that they're already a very innovative, uh, growing um, industry. And uh, a lot of the rest of the world are quite uh, in awe of the Australian systems already. And so we found that the uptake, it, farms just got it. They, they could look at it and they go, yep, that'll work for us. Whereas often in other countries, it was such a big step from the very traditional systems they were using that it takes a little bit more education to actually get them to understand all the benefits. Is there some places that it just wouldn't work? It's a surface system and it's 24-7 on the surface, so it is exposed to the wave action. We've continuously improved the the components to the point now where we're reaching the, the place where the oysters are the weakest link. So if you're in an environment where the water's just too rough and the oysters can't grow, then that kind of becomes the limit but that's different for each farmer some farmers oysters are much harder in the shell and they can be uh, more resilient to that rougher uh, wave action um, other oysters like perhaps uh, in New South Wales they need um, to be able to grow and they need to be in a calmer environment. We often see with oyster baskets that uh, they can they've only got a certain lifespan and, and uh, the opportunities to recycle them are, are not huge. But what about with these kind of baskets? What were the opportunities there, and how long do they last? Yeah, I mean, all of our equipment's recyclable, but um, we have a slightly different view on that. We're aiming to use components and materials that last for a very long time, and so yes, you could create a a system that um, maybe has a five-year lifespan and it's recyclable, um, or you can spend a little bit more on the on the components and the, and the materials and have something that lasts 15, 20 years. So I think um, we, we're kind of looking at a system that doesn't need to be recycled or, or much much less uh, less frequently. What are the plans for the future? Where can you see Flip Farm going from here? Look, we're, we're constantly uh, looking at new options. Some of the more exciting things we're working on is uh, submersible systems for the US market. Um, they have ice in the winter, so they have to sink all their equipment under the ice. Uh, they have hurricanes, so they have to have a hurricane protocol for their farms. So at the moment, they take can take weeks to sink their whole operation. So the latest um, system we're working on means they can sink their whole farm in one to two days. So that's a, that'll be quite a game changer for them. Uh, and then I think some of the bigger companies, even more automation, and so we can do more of the process on water is, is where we're heading. That sinking of the equipment, not something you'd see here in Australia, really. <laughs> no, no, don't tend to have too much ice here. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's it's something that you know could potentially lead to us being able to use it in, in rougher environments. Is it something that other species, you spoke about mussels there, but other seafood species can... Um, incorporate into what they're doing? Yeah, any species that can handle being out of the water for a period of time. So the key thing with oysters is they they actually enjoy being out of the water for a time and other species don't. And so we can use that break to actually control the biofouling. So species that can handle being exposed, yeah, definitely an option. 
I think it'd be quite cool to see that uh, Flip Farm in operation. That was founder of Flip Farm Oyster Growing System, Aaron Pannell, speaking with Brooke Nindorf there. And, uh, yeah, it's being taken up by South Australian oyster farmers, so we'll uh, keep following how that develops. You might remember, I think it was last week, we were chatting about how the uh, Tasmanian potatoes, uh, the, the processing potatoes, are being harvested at the moment. And the, the yields are down a little, but it's looking like uh, South Australia's uh, farmers will be supplying the markets and I thought it'd be interesting to see what's happening elsewhere and in some good news for consumers it seems the big chip shortage could be over after weeks of empty shelves in supermarket shelves across the car, uh, the country the frozen chips are making their way back Tasmanian organizer of the AMWU Mike Wickham says workers at Simplot and McCain's are busy processing the potatoes from the new harvest around the clock Everything's um, underway and back to normal. So they're um, they're pulling spuds out of the ground flat out, both companies. They're um, both back to full operations, which for them is uh, a 24-7 arrangement, 12-hour shifts. So um, they are full on trying to get chips back onto the uh, into the uh, onto the shelves. Have the chips rolled out from the factory yet? Oh yeah, they certainly are. They're uh, they're punching them out pretty rapidly. It must be good news that uh, it's back to normal with the uh, potato harvest. Oh, it is good news for everybody. Good news for um, uh, the workers. Good news for consumers. Everybody, absolutely. How many workers are there at Simplot, and uh, how many at McCain's? Uh, I think we're up around about the two hundred and twenty at uh, Simplot and Olsen McCain's. Uh, around about uh, close to 100, I would think, by now. Hmm. And they're working weekends as well? They do, mate, seven days a week. So what's it been like the last couple of months? I mean, uh, do they have to have less staff working there? Well, most both factories have a Christmas shutdown period, so they do their, their annual shutdowns for four weeks, five if uh, needed, where they do maintenance and uh, clean up and everything. And that's the only opportunity during the year for people to take annual leave in real terms. So that's a normal practice. Um, and they both commence work again in late January, which is, is pretty normal. And thankfully there was... There was uh, potatoes ready to harvest for them. And it's, it was an unusual uh, period, wasn't it? Have you ever seen anything like it with the lack of spuds? <laughs> Not for a lot of years, that's for sure. It's been probably a pretty unique situation. Uh, with the weather and the, what it done to our harvest, but not only potatoes, it affected vegetables and and not only Tasmania, of course, it was um, around the country. And these uh, chips that are being processed now, are they going around the country uh, as well? Yeah, they'll go out to the all the normal all the normal um, um, contracts. So they go retail. They'll go to the likes of Woolworths, Coles, the fast food factories, um, IGA. They'll all get them. They'll all should be starting to get them on the shelves now. Can consumers expect to pay more money for uh, for these spuds this time around for the chips? Uh, not that I've heard. I don't think there's been any increase um, in the costs from from either of those companies. Not that I'm aware of, anyway. And I haven't certainly seen that on the shelves at the moment. And the uh, potatoes that are coming in, uh, are there plenty of them? And uh, what what's the quality? The quality is, uh, by all reports, is pretty good. They're um, quantity wise. Probably going to be a little bit later in the year to see how that holds up. Potentially, you know, they both could be a bit shorter tonnage to what they normally are, but they'll they'll both go close. So we won't have a shortage of chips for the end of the year, Christmas, into the new year. 
So, um, both of both have done late planting as well, so they should hold up pretty well. And uh, of course, um, a lot of restaurants, a lot of fish and chip shops, a lot of places like that missed out uh, in the last couple of months. Will they get back to normal very quickly? Yeah, I should imagine so. Because as I said, they have been pushing them out now since late January, pretty solid. Uh, we should see them all back in, in your favourite restaurant pretty shortly. Mike Wickham, the Tasmanian organiser of the AMWU, speaking with Tony Briscoe about the return of frozen chips to a supermarket near you as the new season potato harvest gets into full swing. It's almost a quarter to one. ABC Listen. Uh, so tell me, what's the question that people ask the most on the Dr Carl podcast? Everything in the entire universe, from haematology to biology to geology. Was there really a big bang? What happens when I have dark urine in the toilet? And finally, why is the sky blue? But mainly just farts. Lots of farts. Dr Carl and Dr Lucy have all the answers on the Dr Carl podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Electric Ute doing the tour of Australia at the moment, but Australia's first electric logging truck is now in operation as well. The truck, which is only as loud as a four-wheel drive car, can now be seen transporting tonnes of logs around the Green Triangle in the southeast, running entirely on renewable electric energy. Sam Bradbrook attended the launch to hear for himself, for himself just how quiet a logging truck can be. What you're hearing is Australia's first electric D-double truck in action, and it's about to hit the road in South Australia. Mount Gambier's Fennel Forestry and New South Wales Central Coast company Janus Electric have spent two years developing this B-double. Fennel Forestry's Wendy Fennel says it has the power to compete with diesel trucks on the roads. So the electric truck is powered by a Dana TM4 engine, which is 540 kilowatts and it equates to a 720 horsepower engine. So it has a normal automatic gearbox in it and operates um, all using electric power through the system. It has regenerative braking that uh, mimics that of an engine brake in a normal diesel, so um, with less noise. This B-double was once diesel-powered like most other trucks, but it's now 100% electric. It's charged with a swap-and-go battery system, and Fennel Forestry expects one charge to last an entire 12-hour shift on the road. Janus Electric CEO Lex Forsyth has lofty hopes for the electric-powered future of transport. This is the technology for the future for it. I think we'll see the mass electrification of fleets right around the world because electric is far more efficient than some of the other zero emissions energy sources. And the beauty about electric is that it's easy to maintain. There's not a lot of maintenance on these vehicles because of the electric motor. They're a sealed unit, essentially. I think where does it look for Genesis in the future? I think we'll, in, in 10 years' time, if we haven't got 15 to 20% of the Australian market, we haven't done our job properly. The project has been entirely privately funded, including building an on-site charging station. Advocates say electric power is the future and public money should be helping to build infrastructure to support it. SA Primary Industries Minister Claire Scriven says she's keen to see the on-road results. 
I found it fascinating to see what Wendy's been able to do here and I think you know, given that South Australia is such a leader in renewable energy it's certainly something that deserves uh, a closer look. So I'll be very pleased to uh, go back and make some more in- inquiries and be talking with my, my colleagues uh, about what I've seen here today and what the future might, might hold. Miss Fennell came into this project not knowing much about electric transport but she's now the head of an Australia First trial. It's been very interesting. It's been a hard slog because there's still a lot of barriers to being able to put this in. But, yeah, it's definitely exciting, learning new technology, seeing where our diesel mechanics are going to now need to learn in a new space. What this can deliver to a transport operation has been very exciting. Fennel Forestry Managing Director at Wendy Fennel speaking with Sam Bradbrook. Now, uh Speaking about sustainability, adopting more sustainable practices on farm is something Australia is behind in, at least according to Regrow Ag. Uh, That company believes there needs to be more financial incentives for farmers to change the way they work. General Manager of Australia and New Zealand, Regrow Ag, Devon Long, explains why farmers need to be rewarded for making the transition. I mean, at Regro, we really believe that you have to start looking at agriculture as the solution rather than just the problem. And the reality is that there are ways to farm which turns agriculture into a massive asset. So for us, we really think that's the focus. The only way to feed a growing population is, you know, not to uh, make it more and more difficult for our farmers to grow productively and to grow, you know, efficiently from an economic perspective. We should focus on, you know, rewarding those farmers from turning their natural capital into a national asset. Is there enough incentive for companies to reduce emissions and regenerate? I think a lot of companies are under pressure to set scope three targets and we're seeing a lot of that at the global level. So I don't think there's any lack of incentive. I think the issue for most of those companies is actually achieving those targets and that's where the incentive comes into play. Most food companies that have set targets have very little ability to actually intervene in the supply chain, you know, all all the way up at, at the farm level. And that's where, you know, new technologies like regrow but as 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 well as others can really help uh, support that flow of finances and incentives all the way back to the place where the change is going to happen which is on farm how about financial support to do those things yes so we really believe that transition to regenerative practices takes time and money and needs to be rewarded with a financial incentive we really focus on building the infrastructure to support that flow whether it's through the offset market or, or the inset market or some other mechanism Regrow as says it has the power to reverse climate change. It's a pretty bold statement. How do you propose to do that? It is a, it is a bold statement. I mean, ultimately, we see agricultural land as a, a significant potential carbon sink. So if we really start taking care of the land and treating it as an asset in the fight against climate change, it can do um, more positive than it can negative, but that it's a joint effort to get us to that point. Can we break this conversation down to an example of where we've seen this happen? So if you look in the US, which unfortunately I'd say is slightly ahead of the Australian market in this, in this particular regard, we see all the big leaders like Cargill, Kellogg's, Mars, PepsiCo, they are all running programs that distribute financial incentives to farmers for practice change. That is a real thing that is happening. There are real farmers who are implementing practices that are good for their farm and that they want to adopt 
and they are getting paid for doing that. That is not a hypothetical. That's a thing that's happening at scale. So is there enough noise in that space? Are people telling the government we need the same and are they listening? I I personally don't really think it's a government issue. I think it's a private industry issue. So our local industry here in Australia, whether that's our own home uh, homegrown food brands or whether that's you know um, uh, supply chains that sell to overseas customers they need to realize that they can actually play a role in moving the dial in terms of carbon on farm and and set up the mechanisms to to really enable that that flow of incentive and at regrow that's really what our software is designed to do in the US, there is, you know, and, well, and overseas, there are private businesses investing in this to meet targets that have been set voluntarily. When we say targets that have been set voluntarily, that's because consumers have demanded it of their products. So while there is a role for regulation, um, you know, when we're talking about incentives and injection of financial flows, you know, there is a significant private market role to play here, 100%. So in saying that, what can happen here in Australia? What opportunities are there? So uh, at Regra, we are really excited to uh, pursue some opportunities in Australia this year, both in the offset market and the inset market. We see key opportunities as building soil carbon in, in grazing systems through um, you know, some really solid regenerative practices like rotational grazing and introduction of a legume. And in the cropping side, we see an amazing number of new technologies that are coming out. And, you know, at, at Avocag, I've, I've seen even more, which can really help optimise nutrients on farm. If, if we're able to crack that and roll that out at scale, I think we can see significant impact in carbon um, through really solid nutrient management. General Manager of Australia and New Zealand Regrow Ag, Devon Long, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris at the AgriFutures Evoke Ag Conference in Adelaide last week. I've had a text in on the electric trucks. Uh, just a question, uh, wondering how they'll go, well, how electric trucks will go carting cattle from a place like Supplejack Downs, which is a property in a remote part of Northern Territory. There is a still a bit of a range issue, I think, with any electric vehicle, be it a truck or a car or whatever, but I'm sure the technology will improve over time. It's interesting that, I mean, at least around Mount Gambia, the distances probably aren't that long, but who knows what the future holds. Thanks so much for your text. Finally, today, the demand for dairy is pretty robust, according to the industry. That's despite a 15% rise in the price of dairy products at supermarkets. Have you noticed that dairy's getting more expensive? Uh, but while demand is high, milk production is down and dairy analysts are predicting a change in consumer buying trends. Dairy Australia analyst John Droppett told Fiona Breen retail dairy product prices will jump even more. People are still putting in their diets, you know, still still buying things like flavoured milk, um, you know, like some of the, the you know, probiotic yogurts and things that you know, are probably more discretionary. So people want the product, uh, people globally want the product. Um, as you say, supply has uh, been slow. There's, of course, we've had the shorter term issues around floods, uh, but we've got some of the more medium term challenges around, you know, around staffing, um, you know, around succession and those pathways into the industry. Do you think prices for dairy will continue, continue to go up for the consumer? I think there's probably a little bit more uh, inflation to come through. If you talk about that 15%, uh, increase on the supermarket shelf that compares with you know a, a 30% increase uh, this season and, and another five uh, percent last season for farmgate prices. So if you think about all the you know all the players in the middle, they've been squeezed um, over the past season, and of course 
you know, farmers are, are paying much more at the farm gate for their purchased inputs as well. And so it sort of stands to reason, especially with the milk pool contracting, that um, some more of that is going to get passed through to the consumer as, you know, this whole kind of commercial equilibrium works its way out over the next year or two. Have you noticed any drop-off with uh, price increases in terms of consumers? The volumes have dropped slightly, um, but certainly not, uh, not to any great extent. I think consumers are pulling back a little bit, but more what they're doing is they're making more conscious decisions. So they'll buy you know, block cheese rather than sliced cheese, for example, because you know, when, when, when money's tight, you can cut the cheese yourself uh, sort of thing. You can, you can forego a little bit of convenience just to uh, save a few dollars here and there. Um, you know, of course, private label um, at times like this does, does see an increase in share. Um, but again, overall, the situation's been pretty robust for dairy consumption so far. What do you mean private label? So home brand products, uh, you know, as opposed to the, uh, you know, the, the name brands that people are quite familiar with. And they're not always Australian uh, made or, or not always got Australian milk? Not always. Certainly in the case of, of liquid milk, it's you know, virtually all Australian. There is some, uh, some UHT from New Zealand, but the vast majority is, is Australian milk. Um, yeah, when it comes to branded products, um, when, when it comes to private labels, sorry, you, you do have a mix of, uh, of Australia, New Zealand and, and, and other origins as well. What do you take out of the current season and the way forward in terms of uh, uh, looking at where we're going? I think where we're at now, we've got a lot of really robust farm businesses. Like, you know, farmers certainly had their challenges with input costs and, and you know, not to mention floods, uh, natural disasters. But, you know, on the whole, farm finances are in pretty good shape. So I think there's a lot of farmers who... You know, have been able to rebuild some of that, some of the financial um, damage that's been done over the, you know, over the preceding period. So I think it's really, it, it, it's a where to from here kind of season, I think. And, and um, there's, there's probably a lot of businesses out there where people are, are looking at well, what, what is the next step? You know, do we stay where we are? Do we um, look at growth? Uh, of course, you know, the, the global situation is so unpredictable at the moment with uh, what's going on in, in Ukraine and, uh, you know, potentially closer to home in, you know, in, in the Pacific. Um, there's, there's still a lot of things to, to take pause for and then, you've, you know, you've got the labour situation as well. So a lot of people probably being pretty contemplative this season, I'd say, about, you know, whether they, whether they take a risk, um, you know. In Time for action, according to Rabobank. Time for action. Well, it's easy. It's easy to say that when you when you um, uh, when you're not making the decision yourself, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's you know, for, for same for me or for, for any sort of service provider. Um, you know, for a person taking on the financial risk themselves, um, I can understand, especially you know, after the tumultuous time we've had in dairy, um, why they would uh, why they would want to run those numbers extra carefully. And you know, interest rates are going up, of course, along with all the other things I've mentioned. Dairy Australia analyst John Droppett speaking with Fiona Breen about dairy prices in supermarkets and the falling milk production pool. So well, we'll have to see what happens with dairy prices this year. That's all I have time for in the program today, but Sonia Feldhoff is going to be with you this afternoon. Lots of exciting things on the boil, I'm sure. Yeah, hi, Cassie. Look, it emerged last uh, earlier this week as we were talking about a 50% rebate uh, from the Adelaide City Council for people to move from gas appliances to electric that you're maybe not as free to do what you want on this score as you might think. Uh, Plumbers suggested to us that the code says that if you have gas going to your property and you want to put in an electric um, hot water system, you can't. You're only limited to gas. Now, that seems ridiculous, but uh, we're going to talk with a regulator today to find out exactly what you can and you can't do on your property when it comes to these appliances. I can imagine there would be a sort of, there might be a safety element in there or something like that. Is, well, is that we'll, 
Let's find out. Okay. I think it has more to do with the diversity at the time of the systems. Oh, but now that we're moving to a more solar and renewable energy type focus, um, is that still appropriate if that's the case? We'll look at that. And news of a new development application on the seawall apartments at Glenelg. Keep listening to your ABC local radio. More to come as we approach one o'clock. It's time for news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.